Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. What's the greatest purpose you could have whilst alive on this earth? Tough question, isn't it? But if you're a Christian, the answer is easy. There is no higher cause than to be committed to the cause of Christ. What does that look like? Well, tonight, Dr. Corbett, again in the New Testament book of Colossians, explores exactly what it is to be committed to the cause of Christ. Let's join him now. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you here. We invite you now to come and speak and minister to us. Lord, as we just take this time out to, to come around your word, we pray that you will take your word and Lord, let it grip our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please turn to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Continuing to look at Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Again, I think it's important that whenever we look at, or whenever you read your Bible, hopefully one of the questions you can answer is, what's going on? Just What's going on here? Why is this letter even here? What, what is actually happening here? And so as we, as we answer that question, we, we realise that th this is a time in Paul's life when he is yet again in prison. So he's been in prison. He's in a prison in Caesarea. He is uh, being visited by a fellow by the name of Epaphras who was probably brought to Christ under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And from Ephesus, Epaphras is returned to his hometown of Coloss, Colossae and has planted this church. And as this church has grown and begun to take root. A couple of different groups have come into the church and brought strange teachings. Another word for teaching is the word doctrine. I was in a, a, a church in America where uh, before I was about to minister, the pastor said to me, this is a church that just isn't interested in doctrine. And I thought, well, that is a doctrine. How can you, I mean, that's crazy, you can't, not interested in doctrine. I think, I think I know what he meant, but I'm not sure. It's just crazy. You, you can't not be a Christian and not be concerned or interested in doctrine. What doctrine is, what you believe. And it's what you believe based on what you were taught. And Paul's actually going to refer to this as we read the first seven verses of Colossians chapter 2. This the, the, the two factors that were, were having a go in this church to bring error, Paul is going to describe them in, in words that will surprise you in these first seven verses. He's, he's not going to say that they're so obvious, you'll know it immediately when you hear it. He's actually going to call the false teaching, plausible, plausible. And we need to look at that and just what he's meaning by that. 
I think we need to understand that when false teaching comes in, it only has to be false by a degree. It only has to be false by a little bit. And tangentially, that means just as you take one degree off, if you keep going on, you'll end up way off. So one degree off, what's the one degree off that Paul is really concerned about happening in the Colossian church? One of the things is that there was a teaching that Jesus Christ was not actually a man. He didn't actually come in the flesh. Now that, that sounds strange to us in our culture because we take that for granted that Jesus was a man. Today, for many people, our problem isn't that Jesus was a man. Our problem today is Jesus was God. And so you have people that deny Jesus was God. You even have people claiming to be Christian, denying that Jesus was God. But back then, people being gods was no problem. Caesar called himself a god. The Greeks called themselves gods. There was, that, that wasn't their issue. Their issue was that Jesus Christ claimed that, that he came in the flesh and people claimed that Jesus came in the flesh and their problem was that a god could be in the flesh because the flesh to this group of people called the Gnostics was evil. And how could God inhabit something fundamentally evil? That was one of their problems. And so these Gnostics claimed that really Christianity and Jesus, he became a Christ. He wasn't the Christ, he became a Christ. He, he achieved a consciousness, a knowledge that took him from being an ordinary person to becoming a Christ. And if you know the knowledge, you too can attain this higher spiritual level. There are certain things you must do. I was listening in the the car yesterday on my way back from somewhere and, and I heard that there was a group in America, I think it was, that were trapped in some cave where there's really hot rocks and, they, and, and people pay $10,000 to go and have a spiritual experience in this hot rock cave. Apparently it gets really, really hot, hotter than a steam bath. They go in there and they, have, they, they start hallucinating and they have all these spiritual experiences. Well, apparently there was a rock fall, they got trapped in there and they got more than they paid for. That was... $10,000 plus worth of spiritual experience called panic. And uh, the, the, these guys, the Gnostics, said if you do certain things like don't eat, whip yourself, deprive yourself, de repress your appetites and your desires, you will achieve a greater level of spirituality. And you hear that dressed up in Christian terms today as well. You hear people kind of say that, you know, if you pray, you know, God, God will probably answer your prayers. But if you pray and fast, well, God will come through big time. As if the fasting manipulates God. That's not Christianity. That's called superstitious witchcraft. And I know that it sells books, and I know that it gets viewers on television programs. But Paul is going to say this is... <laughs> not about us achieving a level of spirituality. This is about us realising who Jesus is. The other group were these people called Judaizers, and they were people that said, yes, you need Christ, but you also need to do these other things. 
So on the one hand, you, got, you had these guys called the Gnostics saying there's a certain mystery that you need to achieve. And on the other hand, you had these Judaizers saying, yes, it's Jesus plus, plus keeping the law, plus being circumcised, plus keeping the feasts and the festivals and the holy days and all these other things. You need Jesus plus and you'll be made right with God. So let's have a look. I want you to see, as we look at these seven verses, this principle. That foundation sets direction. In ancient buildings, rather than the way we build today, which is we frame up and then we clad, they would use blocks. And the block that set the direction of the building was called the what? The cornerstone. So the first stone down set the foundation for the building. And that cornerstone set the direction. It set where that building was going. So I want you to keep that in mind. Foundation sets the direction. Verse 1. Here's Paul writing to the Colossians. Never met them. This is what he says. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. What's Paul's struggle? We're given a clue to what the condition of the church at Laodicea was when we read Revelation chapter 3. Someone tell me, what was the spiritual condition of the church at Laodicea? They were lukewarm. What does that mean? They were going through the motions. Christianity to them was something they just did. Is that what it is for us? God, I hope not. Lord Jesus, don't let us get like that. Don't let this just be something we do on Sunday. Let's not be lukewarm, half-hearted, in the middle. I remember hearing Winky Prattney went and spoke at a youth group once where just pulled out a whiteboard and said, how many of you are cold right now in your relationship with God? And the kids put their hand up. He said, thank you for your honesty. How many of you are really hot? And there was a couple. How many of you just kind of in between? Most put their hand up. He said, well, according to Revelation chapter 3, it's you guys that God is going to spew out of his mouth. Whoa. Jesus says, I'd rather you be hot or cold. Don't be in between. <laughs> Don't go into the game not wanting to get hurt. Get in there to get the ball and kick a goal. Let's be hot for Christ. And Paul says he was concerned about the Laodiceans and the Colossians to the point where he struggled in prayer. He struggled in prayer. What would it have been like to have gone past the cell at midnight and heard Paul praying for the Colossian church and the Laodicean church? What would it have been like? What would we have heard? Would we have heard a man just going, you know, you see um, uh, a Tom coming and you go, oh, I told Tom I'd pray for him. Dear God, bless Tom. Hi, Tom, been praying for you. Is that, is that the picture you get of Paul struggling in prayer for the Colossians? What would Paul have been praying for these Colossians? Perhaps he was praying, oh God, cause them just to stay true to you. Cause them to see Jesus for who he is. Cause them to, to have their, their hearts just so at peace with each other and with you. Don't let offence come in. Don't let these false teachers get a foothold. And he would have been praying as if he meant it. He was the word struggling in prayer, 
struggling in prayer. Oh, church, I hope, I hope there's somebody struggling for you. I hope there's somebody struggling for you, and I hope at the very least it's you. Paul was struggling in prayer for these Colossians and Laodiceans. He was struggling. This is one of the things that leaders do. Leaders pray. Leaders pray. You know, when I say leader, I I, I just make an assumption, and and my assumption is this, that everybody realises that they are a leader. I want every parent, whenever the word leader is used, just in your mind, just replace it with the word parent. Whenever the word leader is used, just, you know, you might think, well, I'm not a leader. I'm just somebody who runs a, runs a Bible study group. I'm just somebody who, whatever, whatever it is, you're a leader. A leader is somebody who serves people. A leader is somebody who influences people. That's what a leader is. Jesus was the ultimate leader. Leaders pray. Leaders pray. Fathers pray for their family. Pastors pray for their church. Home group leaders pray for their home group. Mothers pray for their children. Leaders pray. Paul was struggling in prayer. And that gives us a clue to the goal we should have in praying. We've got a goal here. What else do we see? We read here, That Paul, because he's praying with a struggle, it tells me that something had gripped his heart. So what else do we see about leaders? What do leaders do? Leaders feel compassion. Leaders feel compassion. I mean, what else could Paul do? He was manacled. He was chained in a prison cell. None of this was pretty. What could he do? Well, he said... He could pray. And he was. Why? Because he felt compassion for these people. He felt compassion for these Colossians and Laodiceans, where this letter would also end up. Now, this is interesting. When I asked the question, what would Paul have prayed? We're actually told. And not only told, we see that Paul prescribes the qualities of a healthy, strong church. Now, if I was to ask you that question... What are the qualities of a healthy and a strong church? You go to some conferences, church conferences, and as a pastor, I'm given a list, and the list usually goes something like this. Great worship, great worship team, great music band, um, relevant lifestyle preaching, uh, great coffee after the service. Uh, no, no kidding. A lot, of, a lot of churches now putting in cafes, which is just curious by the way there's lunch after the service today <laughs> and, <laughs> and the, the list you know great leadership training and all this kind of stuff that that would be the list look at paul's list for a minute i reckon there's about six or so things what we're going to see here punctuated by something but have a look what paul lists as the qualities of a strong and healthy church and then i hope that we as a church go We want that for our church. We want that for our church. Over the last couple of weeks, I've just been really impressed with our church. I love this church. You know, the TNT night, I heard uh, Brother Bathurst up here say that, (laughs) oh, I mean, Brother Mark say, say, um, uh, you know, the TNT group is like his kids and he's the dad. I I thought that was fantastic, Mark. 
That's a great way to feel about those you're ministering to. Uh, and the TNT night was a, was a great night. I thought that they did the church proud. And then last night with, with our trivia night, man, I, I had nothing to do with that. And I thought, maybe that's why, it went really, really well. It, it just did the church proud. Uh, which bit? Anyway, and... Uh, <laughs> All right, so here's the qualities of a strong and healthy church. Let's read the next verse. Here's what Paul says. See if you can see what I'm seeing here. That their hearts, this is what he's praying, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance and understanding of, and the knowledge of God's mystery. See how Paul uses that word mystery? <laughs> he's using it a bit differently to the way the false teachers were using it. And it goes on, uh, uh, which is Christ. And we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. Okay, so let's see if you can hear and see what makes for a strong, healthy church. Number one, an atmosphere of encouragement. An atmosphere of encouragement. You know, in some churches, people are afraid to do anything. Because they're afraid they'll get criticised. They're afraid that they'll be told off or won't measure up or won't be good enough or won't be appreciated. That's a bad atmosphere. (laughs) We want to have an atmosphere like what Paul is describing here. This is what Paul's praying. I want this church, I want the, the church at Colossae to have their hearts encouraged Hearts encouraged. You know, some people are so negative. I'm not a big one for preaching, you know, positive thinking and all the rest. I just want to teach what the Scripture teaches. But I actually see this in Scripture, that God doesn't want us always to be negative and down and critical and dark and just gloomy and despondent. Praise God, Amen, Hallelujah. That was that's good preaching. Preach away. Oh, here he goes again. Here we go. Like, <laughs> God wants us to have like that song. I was listening to this. That we, He wants us to trust Him. That was what the song was about, wasn't it, Daryl? Yeah, trust Him. Yeah, when times get tough, trust me. Well, that's what God wants. Well, if you trust God, it's going to change your outlook on life. And yet some people are so negative and they're so discouraging that they're a wet blanket. The Lord's telling me that there are people like that here today. Who is that? I want to pray for it. No. <laughs> but we want to be a church that's encouraging. All right, that's the first thing we see here. And that's in, that's in verse 2. So let's have a look. The, the, the second one is Paul says... I. I I pray that their hearts will be knit together in love. What does that look like? Knit together in love. In my 20-something years of pastoral ministry now, I have realised some people have a propensity, that means they're easily offended by people. They just have a a gift for it. They can find offence even when none was meant. They take offence, they get their, um, their, their Bible verses in a knot and out they go. And <laughs> so what does it look like to be knit t- 
together in love. Knit, have your hearts knit together in love. Because if we take a romantic notion, that is never going to happen. That's what romantic means. Uh, not, see, I had to define it because it's not the, what I mean when I talk about my relationship with Kim. That's, something complete, that's a different type of romantic. That's like she gets whatever she wants. But in this sense, romantic, it ain't never going to happen, Seth. You with me? So in a romantic concept of church, some people think that, you know, everything will go their way, people will always take an interest in them, everything will, you know, it'll all just whatever. Uh, and the reality is we're all busy people. We've all got our own lives that we're leading. We're all consumed at times by our own thoughts and our own problems and our own situations. And we've got, you know, some of us have got four kids to bundle up and try and get in the car to get to church on a Sunday and, and that creates a whole lot of issues and so when you get here you're just not in a zone you, you know what I'm saying so sometimes we, we I think when hearts are knit together it means they've been through a fence it means that they've learned how to forgive I was talking with uh, brother Peter Behrens this week on his radio program and one of the things that, that we were talking about was what, what makes for a strong family one of the things that makes for a strong family is that strong families have to learn how to forgive Anyone in one? And you've had to learn how to do that? Still learning how to do that? Struggling to do that, maybe? Well, it's the same in church, isn't it? It's the same in church. We have to learn how to forgive. We have to learn that currency. People, and then when we do that, I think that's one of the things that will help us to have our hearts knit together. Hearts knit together. That's the second thing I see here that creates for a strong and healthy church. The third thing Paul says here, uh, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Riches of understanding. Rich in understanding. Now this is perhaps going to be a challenge for us because Paul is addressing the problems presented by the false teachers in this church and he's saying the problems are solved when you know who Jesus is. So here's the question. And, and, and Norm touched on it and, and it's this Who's Jesus? Do, do we really know him? And would we describe that knowledge as rich? You know, when you go to apply for a loan at the bank and it says assets, do you, knowledge of Christ. You know, that's got to be worth a lot right there. You know, riches. Because that's what Paul says. If you've, got a, if you've got an understanding of Jesus... You can have an understanding of Jesus, but then Paul says you can have a rich understanding of Jesus. In another place, to another people, Paul talks about the, the, the uh, immeasurable riches of the knowledge of Christ. Wow. What does he mean? Whatever he means, we want it in this church. We want to be a church rich in understanding. What's the next thing we see? He says rich in knowledge, the knowledge of God's, minister, of God's mystery. We want to be a church, number four, rich in knowledge. Now, you might be going, well, that's just all head. No, it's not. Hearts knit together in love, rich in understanding, that's wisdom, how we conduct ourselves, and rich in knowledge. Now, notice in the next verse as we 
as we see it lead into the next verse, he describes Christ as God's mystery. So God's mystery is Christ Jesus. And you know what this means? Some people will hear about Jesus. Some people will read about Jesus. Some people will think about Jesus. They'll read books about Jesus, but they'll never know Jesus. God's mystery. What's that word mystery? Mystery means if you get a mystery, it means you've been initiated into it. It means that something has been revealed to you. Something was hidden, it's not hidden anymore. So for most people, who Jesus is, is hidden from them. They don't get it. They don't understand him. When we Christians dare to say there is no other way to God but through Jesus Christ, most people go, well, that's arrogant. No, it's not. It's right. It's the truth. And we can share that, hopefully, in a way that doesn't come across as arrogant. Now, in this next verse, we have one of the most amazing statements that counters this idea that Christianity is about switching your head off and just going with your heart. Listen to what it says here. In verse 3 about Jesus. So it says, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you get a spare couple of hours, just ponder that verse for a moment. (laughs) Paul is saying, there is nothing Jesus doesn't know. Next time, students, you've got a calculus trigonometry problem. Jesus already knows the answer and how to get there. And some. The next time you've got a work challenge, Jesus already knows the solution. He is the sum total of all wisdom and all knowledge. Now that should cause you to go, wow. That should cause you to go, The next time I have a problem, I'm going to pray to him. The smartest person in the universe. Jesus Christ knows everything. He knows everything. That is amazing. Paul, you see what he's doing here is beginning to lift Jesus up. In the eyes of his readers, you've got to understand who this Jesus is. And hopefully his readers would have gone, really? We need to... We need to really get this because we don't know him this way. And my fear is that we don't either. We think Jesus was kind of only religious. He's not just religious. He's smart in every way. And all wise in every way. He knows everything. Now, this is the the next verse, verse 4. I say this in order, right? So this is now Paul saying, this is why you need to know this. I say this in order, that no one may delude you with what type of arguments? Persuasive, other translations? Plausible arguments. Plausible arguments. What's a plausible argument? Firstly, what's an argument? It's not a fight. An argument in the old sense of the word means reason. So when you're arguing with someone, in the stricter sense of the word, you're exchanging reasons. Now Paul says, 
there are these false teachers, their reasons sound plausible. What does that mean, plausible? Well, it just initially it sounds right. It sounds, yeah, that's possible. Plausible means possible. It doesn't mean that's the way it is. It needs examination. And this is one of the challenges we've got. If you are self-deceived, how do you know it? Can you know it? Plausible. Paul says these are plausible arguments that these false teachers are presenting. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about some of the arguments that people have brought against Christianity in recent days that I've heard. <laughs> some of them go like this. Um, oh, let's, let's bring it up, Ben. We've got the next one. The, these are some of the arguments. That uh, oh, Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just fell unconscious and he swooned. That is, he kind of faked his own death. Okay, show me how that's done. Let's grab, let's grab three really rusty nine-inch nails, pin you to a cross for the best part of 12 hours, shove a javelin up through your internal organs, up through your, your, your lung and heart, and uh, make sure you know, we've given you 24 hours of beating, floggings, thorns in your head, and a whole lot of other stuff, and put you in a tomb for three days and see what happens. The Romans didn't get these things wrong, guys. When they said, he's dead, they knew what dead looked like. And yet there are some people that say this. Now, that, 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 could, that could kind of sound plausible. Jesus didn't really die. The resurrection, that, as if. Jesus just kind of faked his own death. Oh, really? Yeah, here's another one. Let's have a look at this one. Jesus, seek, oh, this is the Dan Brown one, Da Vinci Code. Jesus secretly married Mary Magdalene and had a secret child. Oh, really? And the evidence for that is... There is none. <laughs> it's just someone's made it up. <laughs> All right, let's have a look at the next one. I think it's the reincarnation one. Yeah. The New Testament used to teach reincarnation. Did you know that? I heard someone say this recently. It was removed from all copies of the Bible by Constantine in the 4th century. You know, what that's, that, that would be like taking last, this day, last year's examiner, rounding up every copy, because your name might have appeared in it, and removing every reference to you in, you know... October last year, where your name is, and removing it from every copy, breaking into the examiner, removing it from their archives, their microfiche, finding every copy that was sent around to the libraries of the world, including the Library of Congress in, in Washington, D.C., and removing it from uh, 20,000, 30,000 copies, which there would have been about the time of Constantine. Does that sound plausible? Not really. So initially, that might sound plausible until you think about, no, that can't be right. That's just not right. Apart from the fact that we're finding ancient manuscripts older than 400, 4th century, and it's just, there's no mention of it. Hebrews 9.27 says, it, was a, it is appointed unto every man to die, how many times? Once. Once, then the judgment. And one more. 
The New Testament contains over 5,000 original manuscript errors. It can hardly be inspired. This is something that's being promoted by a fellow by the name of Professor Bart Ehrman at the moment. The Bible contains over 5,000 copyist errors. It can hardly be inspired. You know, some of those copyist errors are absolutely inconsequential. Like, for example, there's two Greek words, lusante, losante. One means to be freed, one means to be washed. And it's, it describes the blood of Christ having that effect on the believer. The, the blood of Christ has washed us of our sins, or the blood of Christ has freed us from our sins. Is there a doctrinal difference? Not at all, but it's one letter difference in the Greek. That's supposedly a rampant error in the Greek. You see what I'm saying? You, you do that 5,000 times, and you see, that's not an argument. There's no doctrinal difference at all, and yet they sound plausible. And I would say, over the coming months and years, you're going to hear more attacks on Christianity that are initially going to sound plausible, and you're going to go, oh my goodness, and you just need to stop, you need to come back to Scripture and go, hang on, the Bible doesn't actually say that. The Bible doesn't say that. Now listen to what Paul also says makes for a healthy church. We read on, verse 5, For though... I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul considered a healthy, strong church to be a church that was well-ordered, well-structured, well-ordered. And the other thing he mentions, firm and steadfast in faith in Christ. Firm and steadfast. We're not... Hot for him one day, cold the next. We're not trusting him today, abandoning him tomorrow. We keep going despite the circumstances. That's why I love that song we sang, Desert Song. That, that's brilliant. Theology in that is brilliant. Brilliant. No matter what, we will continue to trust him. Here we go. We're just near the end now. So let's have a look at this. We've got verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Think about this. What's the condition of someone's heart when they receive Jesus? You know, when I think about this question, Paul's sort of putting here, I, I, I think humble, open, receptive, teachable, all those sort of words come to mind. You might have other words that come to mind about the condition of a heart when that person accepts Christ. Paul says, whatever that was, that's what you must maintain in your walk with Christ. So you can't say, well, the Bible tells me to be humble. I did that last week. I've moved on. This, that statement right there tells me you haven't even begun. So whatever it is that what was in your heart when you accepted Christ, you need to continue that. Childlike faith, trusting God, openness to him, allowing him to have his way in our lives. Here's a statement someone has said based on this verse. What brings them keeps them. So imagine if we did a church where every Sunday we, you know, I was thinking we could have a, a, a youth band by the name of Free Beer. And we advertise Free Beer at Lagana this Sunday. Sort of bring them in, wouldn't it? Well, you'd have to come up with something just as good or better the next week to keep them in. Whatever brings them in, keeps them in. Whatever it was that brought you to Christ will keep you in Christ. And if what brought you to Christ was not very good, chances are you won't continue to walk with Christ. What brought you to Christ? Did you recognise that he was saviour? 
That's the best thing. That's the best thing to recognise. Because it's that thought that will keep you walking with him. Because you'll recognise that you need to be saved every minute. You need to be saved every day. You need to be saved all the time. And if you've come to Jesus because he's your saviour, look, it wouldn't matter if we sang hymns. It wouldn't matter if we had, you know, six songs just like that one, that whatever they were doing. It wouldn't matter because our hearts would, would be, I'm just going to worship him. I'm going to put up with whatever I have to put up with to connect with my saviour. It won't matter. We need Jesus as our saviour because that's what will keep us going with him. So we come to the final verse. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So where we're going here is worship. Thanksgiving, an act of worship. Where Paul is going here is ultimately to say, good, strong, healthy churches come to that point where they worship. They are bound in thanksgiving. What are the steps? What are the qualities leading up to that point where churches just want to worship God and give him thanks and abound in thanksgiving? We read in that verse, in verse 7, that good churches love and learn. We read that Paul has already said, I want your hearts knit together in love. And this is what I want. He goes on and he says, just as you were taught. Good churches have good teaching. Good churches, strong churches, are churches where the word of God is taught. So good Christians love and learn. And one of the currencies of love is forgiveness. Forgiveness. If someone hasn't offended you in this church, you just haven't, never, you just haven't been here long enough. And if you haven't had the wonderful opportunity to forgive someone for offending you, then I will pray, particularly this week as I'm on my way to India, that somebody offends you to the proportion of... Anyway, anyway, so none of us are looking forward to that. But we can, we can grow in the grace of being able to love one another. See, Paul is saying here, we need to be rooted and built up in him, in him. That's an expression that occurs all through Colossians, in him. Rooted in him, built up in him. What's he saying? He's saying it's all about Jesus. I know that there was a TV campaign and, a, and a, an outreach campaign, it's all about Jesus. It actually really is all about Jesus. It really is. And Paul is saying, you need to know Jesus. You need to know that Jesus is your foundation. Jesus is the one who builds you up. Jesus is the one who keeps you. Jesus is the one who we cry out to with our heart. Oh God, I don't know you like I should. I want to know you more. I want to know the riches of what you have for me. I want to know the riches of your person. I want to know the riches of your grace. I want to know you, Lord Jesus. And I'm thankful right now for what you've done. Is that your heart cry? Can you make that your heart cry? Because that's what Paul is saying. Let's pray. Father, help us, I pray, as a church, to be strong and healthy. And Father, for those who have not yet given their lives to Christ, 
I pray for them right now. I pray, Lord Jesus, that something in their heart would, would say, Jesus, come and take my heart, my life, the core of my soul. Come and take me. Set the course of my life. Be my cornerstone. Be the one who directs and guards and governs and defines my life. Jesus, I need you. And Father, for us as a church, I pray that it will be about Jesus. That it will be about Jesus. That we will lay everything down to worship and honour Jesus. Amen. Committed to the cause of Christ. Is that your heart? And does your life reflect that? Sobering questions for each of us to answer. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Colossians Part 4, are available from Lagana Media. You can contact us at P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277, or via the website findingtruthmatters.org. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly e-newsletter Perspectives, visit findingtruthmatters.org and click subscribe. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you join us at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.